good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. I've been uh, out of the pulpit the last couple of weeks. I'm Clay Holland, senior pastor here at Christ the King, and I am delighted to be back. Uh, it has been a, uh, obviously it's been a challenging week uh, in the life of our country. In fact, you know, one of our uh, pastors this morning, when I was driving up to the, um, to the church this morning, I had gotten a text and one of our pastors, and I'm not going to tell you who it was to protect the uh, innocent or the guilty, whichever way it is, sent me a text of, it, it, it said, purple church bingo card. And basically what it was, was a whole bingo card of like all of these phrases and lines, you know, that people would probably try to say to kind of navigate the times that we're in. And if you say, if you get a, well, you know, all of them, you can have bingo. So you could probably Google that. Uh, some people, I think, did in the first service, but you probably don't want to do that. But it has been um, a really difficult week in the life of our nation. It's just been a, it's been a really, it's been a struggle. It's an historically difficult day in Washington uh, on the day of Epiphany, and this is the day, as Taylor has already said, that the church celebrates Epiphany. Epiphany was on Wednesday. This is the Sunday following um, Epiphany, and on the day of Epiphany was the day that uh, people walked into our nation's capital. Uh, While both houses of Congress were in session, proceedings were halted, American citizens lost their lives. Uh, This has to be lamented, and it has to be mourned. But I'll also tell you this, prior to the events of Wednesday, well prior to the events of Wednesday, I'd already decided that I was going to preach on this text in Matthew chapter 2 because it is the text upon which Epiphany is based. This is the story of the Magi from the east coming to find the king who was born in Bethlehem. It's a little bit confusing because, you know, we're familiar with the songs, We Three Kings from Orient are, but the truth about this passage is that um, the text doesn't say there were three of them. Um, They were not kings, and they also weren't from the Orient, but that's okay. We'll kind of get into a, a lot of those things a little bit later, but also one of the things that is confusing about this text is that on our manger scenes, the Magi are there on the night that Jesus was born. But that's the night that they may have seen the star, or maybe sometime after that. And in fact, when you get to Herod's order to kill all of the male children in Judea and the surrounding area, he gives an order to kill all of the children two years old and younger. So this event took place at some point after um, the birth of Jesus. Also, there's a hint in that they come to see Jesus in a house in Bethlehem and not in a uh, and not in a manger. So a couple of clues in there. But I am, I think, going to go ahead and take the elephant that's in the middle of the room and go ahead and put it right on the table. Because if I don't, I think people are just going to speculate about it the the entire time. One of the characters in this story is Herod. Herod is a political leader who feels deeply threatened by the presence of Jesus and reacts with the threat of violence and actual violence later. Um... In our country, our filters have all been politicized. I think we know that. Um, so I feel like if I don't kind of point this out on the front end, you're always going to be speculating, you know, like if, wh- where, which lines I'm drawing to which places. Am I talking about the president, et cetera, et cetera? Some of you will be happy. Some of you will be upset. We'll probably end up like the rest of our country, divided over partisan politics. So on the front end, yes, 
This passage, along with many other passages in the Bible, does speak about the character of those who are in positions of leadership. But it is not the main point of this passage. It's not the main point of this passage. The main point of this passage is that there is a king who is greater and more powerful than any of the kings of this world. And this king does not exist for one people or one nation or one political party or one race or one ethnic group. This king is a light to the entire world. So the questions that this text poses to us are these. Does the presence of King Jesus threaten our sovereignty over our life? Does the the presence of King Jesus threaten our comfort? Does the presence of King Jesus inspire our worship? Those are the questions uh, that I want us to have in the front of our minds as I read this text. So I'm going to read now from Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being a light unto the nations, for coming to seek and to save the lost, like us, and bringing us into your family. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice in that on this day and all days. In your name, amen. Some of y'all are not old enough to remember this, but probably a lot of you in this room are. Do you remember Y2K? the Y2K phenomenon. Y2K, uh, I was in seminary. We were living in St. Louis. Y2K was when the computers of the world uh, were going to go from 99 to 00, zero, and it was kind of understood that the computers of the world wouldn't know if that 00 was 2000 or 1400 or 1600 or 1800 or what those 00 stood for, and chaos was going to uh, to happen, and you know, all kinds of bad things that were going to happen in the world. I remember a couple of things about Y2K. One was the general hype around it. There was a lot of hype and a lot of build up to it. The second thing I remember about Y2K was that Shannon and I 
both had the flu. We were so sick uh, on New Year's Eve of 1999. We were just like lying on the sofa, lying in bed. And we kind of thought to ourselves, I think we actually had this conversation like, well, if it all comes down, you know, if, if, if the world comes to an end and we're, you know, fending for ourselves tonight, we're toast because we can't move. And that was basically what I remember about Y2K. But there is at least one other person in the world that remembers Y2K for another reason. I have a friend who was a pastor, not at this church, but at another church, who was theologically different, I think, in 1999. He was uh, in college, and he was sitting around on New Year's Eve with a whole bunch of his friends, and they were talking about Y2K. And they asked my friend what they thought, what he thought was going to happen. This was about 11.45 p.m. on New Year's Eve, 1999. And my friend said that what he thought was going to happen was that at midnight, Jesus was going to return. He was going to come back. That the people that believe in Jesus were going to meet him in the clouds. The rapture, if you've read the, uh, the Left Behind books, you know that kind of story. Uh, and uh, the people that don't believe in Jesus are going to be left on this earth to suffer. And one of the people that was in this conversation was an unbeliever. And he got so distressed by this that this is not a, this is a true story. That 11.55 p.m. New Year's Eve 1999, he became a Christian. Now, there's some interesting things about this. First, this happened in Texas. And understanding that Texas is the center of the universe, I mean, we know that. But does it really make sense that this was all going to happen at 12 o'clock on Central Time? Like, if Jesus was going to come back at midnight, wouldn't it happen like a Greenwich Mean Time? Wouldn't it happen in the middle of England at some point? But I can understand how that might happen in Texas first. Um, but there are other things that my, my friend who actually uh, had this moment with his friend, theologically speaking, doesn't actually believe any of these things anymore. Yet, however imperfectly all of this happened, God chose that moment he chose that event, he chose that conversation to bring someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. A person who still worships him to this very day. It's all very unexpected. And that's the point of Matthew chapter 2. It's all very unexpected. It's, le it's pretty easy to lose our astonishment at what actually happens in the story because it's familiar. But the truth is, is that nothing here happens as it should. It's all crazy. It really is all crazy. And that's the instructive part. It's instructive because it shows God's determination to bring those people that we would least expect into his family. And this is encouraging with, our, with respect to our relationship with him if we remember that we too are those who are lost and dead in our sins and have to be made alive by Christ to be in Christ. And the best way, I think, to understand this story is to put yourself into it. There are three main characters here. Some are individuals, some, some are groups. There are the wise men, um, the, the magi. There's Herod, the ruler, the leader of Jerusalem. And there are the religious leaders and the people in Jerusalem. There's also Jesus, who's the main character of every story, and Mary. But thinking about these other three characters, Herod, uh, the, the people in Jerusalem, and the, uh, the wise men, 
We can see this text, the point of this text, through those three lenses in these three ways. First, that Jesus poses a threat to the powerful. Second, that Jesus poses a challenge to the religious. And third, that Jesus presents an invitation to the lost. He poses a threat to the powerful, a challenge to the religious, an invitation to the lost. So, Jesus poses a threat to the powerful. Now, power and authority is represented in this story by Herod the king. And if there weren't corroborating historical evidence outside of the Bible, you might think that this is made up, or you might think that he is just a a caricature of an evil leader. But he was, actually, historically speaking, uh, an evil leader. Herod was a Jew, but he was a hand-picked governor of the Roman Empire. So he was a a conspirator with an occupying power in Jerusalem. That made him highly disliked and distrusted by the people. It's like the, the president of France in World War II under Nazi control. He was a puppet governor, but he knew the language of Judaism and he knew what to do to keep the peace and to endear, in some ways, the people to him. Um, He, in fact, was the one who built the temple in Jerusalem that stood until A.D. 70. He knew how to speak the language of Judaism. He knew what surface actions to take to endear himself to the people, but all of it was external. You see in this passage and the one that follows it in particular that his true heart was revealed in the fruit of his life. Herod was so paranoid at all times about losing leadership, that he killed all kinds of people. He killed one of his wives and three of his children because he thought that they were plotting against him. He gave orders to his servants, this is historically corroborated, he gave orders to his servants to go and find some of the most beloved citizens of the citizen of Jerusalem And on the day of Herod's death, to put those citizens to death so that there would be weeping on the day of Herod's death. He did that. Yet we see from this story that he was also threatened by the birth of the king of the Jews, who was to him both a sovereign threat and a spiritual threat. So Jesus poses a sovereign threat. Power and control are two things that are greatly valued. We value that. that you know, we, th- at our heart of hearts, we want to have control over our lives and we want to exercise authority over a lot of different things. Um, but here's the deal. Jesus is always, and not, not sometimes, he's always going to be a threat to our own self-sovereignty because Jesus is not an advisor. Jesus is not a life coach Jesus is not a supplement to our lives like we take vitamin D if we work in offices all day and don't get a lot of sun. Jesus is the king over the universe. And being a Christian means submitting the entirety of your life to his sovereignty, his control. So you give up a lot of your own control over your life in becoming a Christian, your thought life your vocational life, your family life, your interaction with others in the world. And you will know, not necessarily by what you claim to be true, but you'll know in many respects by the fruit of your life if you are unwilling to give control of any area of your life to Jesus. 
you'll know it not necessarily by what you say, but you will have evidence of it by how you live and by what you do. You see, in many respects and for most of his life, Herod said all of the right things. But he would do absolutely anything to maintain his power. So when Magi show up at his doorstep and ask a simple question, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? They assume that he's going to know the answer because he's the guy in charge, but he doesn't know the answer. His response is telling. The text tells us Herod was troubled. Deeply troubled, deeply disturbed uh, in the original language. And all Jerusalem with him. This is the sense of, you, you know the saying, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? That's the way it was in Jerusalem. When Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. When Herod is troubled, everybody's troubled. When Herod gets disturbed, heads tend to roll. But Herod... Though a Jew who should be longing for and looking for the Messiah didn't see any possibility of the work of God in Jesus. Only a threat to himself. He's a sovereign threat. Jesus is also a spiritual threat. Herod used religion as a way to build influence and to consolidate power for himself. He built a temple in Jerusalem. Not for the glory of God but so that his name would be remembered into perpetuity. And so when he told the wise men that he wanted to go and worship the new king, he may have meant it in the sense that he wanted to go find out where this king was and maybe pay token homage to him and at least assess the situation and how serious it was for his own power and influence. So there are a couple of applications for us in reading this story through the eyes of Herod. And the first does have to do with leadership, leadership in general. Because you can always tell what a leader values most. Whether that's a political leader, whether that's an institutional leader in your workplace or another institution. And frankly, the church has been having serious trouble with this over the last you know, several years. Whether it's a spiritual leader. By the actions that they take when they perceive that their influence is under threat. It is actually important. And second, we see what it is that we value the most. When our sovereignty, our hope and desire to rule over our own lives is under threat. Because at some point Jesus is going to challenge your self-sovereignty. He just will. It might be the moment when you recognize that if you don't cheat on that test, that A in that class that is important to you is not going to happen. And so that's a question. Is the A in the class more important than your integrity and your honesty? Is the lucrative business deal that you're right on the edge of, right on the verge of, is it more important than your integrity and your relationships? Is the social status that you might just gain for yourself more important than the call to love your neighbor as yourself, to pour yourself out for the least of these? You see, Jesus poses a threat to power. Whether it is influence over other people or whether it is just our own power to exercise our own authority in our own lives. Why? Because he's the king, not only of Jerusalem, he's the king of the universe. 
he and no other. So Jesus poses a threat to the powerful. Second, Jesus poses a challenge to the religious. Now, as we briefly mentioned above, it is possible to be thoroughly religious. Herod, Herod knew the words. He knew the actions. He knew the rhythms. He knew the, he knew the drill. It is possible to be thoroughly religious, never to miss church, never to miss your quiet time, never to miss your Bible study, going to Christian school, going to Christian camp. It's, it's possible to do all of those things and still miss Jesus. In fact, it might be kind of easy to do that in some respects. It seems that the entire city of Jerusalem missed Jesus in Matthew 2, including the people that were the religious and spiritual leaders, the ones who were supposed to be spending their lives looking for the Messiah. They all missed him. When Herod could not answer the wise men regarding where the Messiah was supposed to be born, he gathered the experts the scribes and the chief priests. They were experts in the Bible and they knew the answer right off the top of their head. They knew it. Oh, in Bethlehem. That's where he's supposed to be. In Judea. Let me quote the passage from you from the prophet Micah. But, do you know what happened next? Both with the religious leaders and all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Nothing. Nothing. It's kind of like the scribes and the chief priests said, oh, a Bible trivia question, sweet, we know these. And they got it, and they got it right. And then they just went back to work. They just went back to their books. And the people in Jerusalem who were briefly stirred up because Herod was stirred up or briefly curious, they didn't do anything nobody went to see. Nobody said, why do you ask? Did something happen? Is this something we should know about? The residents of Jerusalem didn't follow the wise men from the east to look for the Messiah. Could that be you today? Could that be me today? Have you ever had in your life a time of spiritual awakening? A time when you felt really close to God, really close to Jesus, really spiritually excited, really on fire for the gospel, but then life intervened? Schoolwork, sports, social commitments, work, carpool, travel opportunities and things that disconnected you from the life of the church or the body of, of Christ. And, you know, maybe even the challenges posed this past year by, by coronavirus. You know, all could conspire in some ways to take that initial excitement, to take what used to be so central in your life and to push it a little bit out to the margins and over time that fire that once burned really bright and vibrant begins to fade. Or maybe you have been tempted to use knowledge about God and the Bible as a way to make God less threatening to you, less threatening to your sovereignty because maybe you have been able to create a God that you thoroughly understand uh, that never surprises you in any way, that would never do anything out of the unexpected like call uh, Magi from the east to come to Bethlehem. That's, I think, in some respects what happened to the chief priests and the scribes. They had their niche. They had their lane. They were very comfortable in it. And even the potential presence of the Messiah that they didn't really get curious about. Why? I don't know. But maybe it's because they knew 
that it could disrupt this life that they had cultivated for themselves and they weren't ready for that disruption. That's a question that we have to ask very often with respect to Jesus. Are we ready for our lives to be disrupted thoroughly by him? Are we ready for Jesus to do the completely unexpected thing? Are we ready to be uncomfortable? That's the challenge that is often posed to religious people. So Jesus poses a threat to the powerful, a challenge to the religious. So the question then is, who's left? Who's left in this story to see it from a different vantage point? And those are the lost people, the unexpected ones who come to embrace Jesus. Now, I want to be really clear regarding the point of this text. The point of this text is that there is one true king and one true king only. He is not the property of a nation or of a political party or of a race or of an ethnicity. He does not belong to them. He does not work for them. Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem, is the king over all creation. And what is clear from this text is that he invites any and all from near and far who would simply bow the knee of their heart to him and submit their lives to him to come to him and to be transformed. And so to be further clear, the mission of Jesus to be the king of the universe and the light to the nation does not depend in any way, shape, or form on any election. Any election in this country or any other country. He's the king of the universe. And I must say, or I will say, as your pastor, that a lot of the things that transpired over the last week are to be wrestled through and to be dealt with in, in th- through, through our, our gospel-saturated lenses with your friends and family members and close advisors. They're not in my lane. But one thing that I think is in my lane is the confusion, the potential confusion of the juxtaposition of religious symbolism and political symbolism commingling itself together like a cross being drugged through the capital of the United States because it suggests that the it suggests that the mission of Jesus depends on the outcome of a political process that's hurtful to the mission of the church it's hurtful to the mission of the church and as your pastor my call to you and to me is not to get confused and not to get distracted Because this church exists to reach Houston for Christ and to renew lives by grace. So what's the message of the mission of the church? Well, Jesus himself sums it up in Luke chapter 19. He gave voice to the narrative event of Matthew chapter 2 when he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. All of those words are important. All of those words are instructive. First, the lost. That's who Jesus has come for. He's come for the lost. The Magi were not religious people in the sense of those who were previously worshiping Yahweh. Now, I could go into, this story is providentially fascinating and for about a million reasons. But one is that 
a long time before this event happened, uh, there were, God's people were in the place of the Magi. They were where those people lived. This is where, this is where uh, Babylon and Persia came, you know, were all at war and where the book of Daniel took place. And they were actually familiar with the writings of Old Testament scripture. Strange, isn't it? Weird. Very coincidental. Lucky for them, I guess. No, God's providential hand is at work in this story. They, they see a star, and they have, they're familiar with his writings, and they go looking for it. But these people are astrologers, right? These people are the people that look into the sky, and they take their direction for what they're supposed to do in life from the way that the stars are aligned and what the stars do. Now, strangely enough, this is specifically condemned in the Old Testament. The Old Testament says, don't do that. But yet, this is what God uses to bring these people to himself. They weren't Jews. They spent their time finding guidance in the stars. And they came to see the king. Why? Well, that speaks to that second word in Luke 19. Seek. Seek. The Magi were there because God called them there. The Magi came to worship Jesus because God brought them there to worship Jesus. Ever since the beginning of the Bible, God has been clear. He is a global God. He's not a tribal deity. He doesn't exist for one country. He doesn't exist for one race. He doesn't exist for one ethnicity. This is what's clear all the way through the Old Testament. God called his people Israel to be a light to the nations. Not simply to exist for Himself. And the end of human history is that people from every tribe, nation, and language bow the knee to worship God, the God of the nations. The Jews, it seems, at the time of Jesus had forgotten that. They had thought at that point they kind of had a corner on God, that God belonged to them. But God, through these acts of his providence, brought these most unexpected people to find Jesus through his sovereign hand. All of that reminds us that Jesus offers salvation to the world and not just to us. And then there's that last word, save. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. When the Magi found Jesus, they famously bowed down and they worshipped him. But they were also profoundly affected by their encounter with Jesus. They heeded God's word to them in a dream and they double-crossed Herod. They didn't go back to tell Herod where Jesus was. They went back to their own country another way. They had been transformed by an encounter with this Savior who was two years old or younger somehow. That Jesus had maybe even worked the first of his recorded miracles. Changing the hearts of unbelievers into worshipers. And then, and this is the beautiful part, they went back to Persia. They went back to their own country. To do what? To tell the story of what they had seen. To tell the story of where they had been. That's the mission of God. To seek and to save the lost. And that is good news. You know why? Two reasons. Because we're the lost. We're the nations on the other side of the world that if people didn't go and tell, 
you know, that, that, that we would have never heard. You know, when in, in, in the fourth century, when the church was really, uh, was really centralized in, in Italy, in that area, the people of England were like ridiculously crazy pagan worshiping like almost cannibals. And somebody went and told them about Jesus. And somebody went and told, and they went and told other people about Jesus. And they went and told other people about Jesus. And then, you know what? Somebody told us about Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. We have to remember that we are the magi in this story. We're the ones from far off that God has brought in. He's come to seek and to save us. The second thing is, is that this can provide you great and deep and abiding comfort. If you like me, have been shaken over this past week, if this has brought you great distress, events in our nation, events in the world, you can rest that there is a king whose sovereignty depends on nothing but the fact that he is the creator and the sustainer and the governor and the ruler over all things. And his sovereignty is not up for discussion and is not up for vote. And you can rest in that when everything else seems, the moorings of everything else seems to be loose and shaken because the actual mission of Jesus and the actual mission of the church doesn't really depend on which way the cultural headwinds are blowing. The church can have tailwind and be moved along in comfort and ease toward its, toward, its, uh, toward its mission, or the church can have headwind where the culture is set against it. And either way, the church can be effective in its mission to proclaim the salvation of the king of the universe and the king over all of the world. God's mission is to seek and save the lost. Our mission is to participate in God's mission to seek and save the lost. The most unexpected people doing the most unexpected things. That is the beauty of the salvation and the purpose and the mission that is offered through our sovereign king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you sought and saved us, the lost. Help us, Father, to rejoice in that, not just today, but all days. Help us, Father, to Align the purpose of our lives with your purpose in the world. Help us, Father, not to get confused or disheartened, but simply to follow you and to be your representatives in this world. We ask it in your name. Amen.